So turn to the book of Zechariah. You should be familiar with this by now. And uh, we're going to last two chapters this morning. We're going to close out this book. Uh, and we're coming towards the end now of the Minor Prophets. We've started a journey a little way back now, uh, going through these Minor Prophets as they're referred to. Not minor because of content or anything else. Minor simply because, as a general rule, the books are shorter than the major prophets, so typically Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, so on. But Zechariah actually is a, a longer book than Daniel, so really, I, in some respects, we should argue that Zechariah should be considered one of the major prophets, um, and certainly the themes he brings are major. But, you know, all the prophets uh, that we've been going through have been very much speaking along the same lines. They've been speaking about God's plan and purpose for the nation of Israel, exposing why God had allowed judgment to come or foretelling that judgment was coming and why. But then also speaking with real clarity about the future of the nation. And that's exactly what we've seen in the book of Zechariah. Just to remind you once again, the book starts with that exhortation to repent, to be obedient, to seek God not repeating the mistakes that they'd made before. And then we go into this uh, series of visions, eight stroke ten visions, depending on how you want to count them, uh, that lay out from 518 BC the future history of Israel in advance of what God was going to do with the nation, making it really clear that God has chosen the Jews, God has chosen Jerusalem, and he's not about to turn around and say, that's it, enough, all over. Yes, there will be judgment because of their disobedience. And even after the Babylonian captivity, as we saw going from uh, chapter uh, 10 uh, into 11 and 12, we see there the promise of blessings upon the land. But then the answer to that, why haven't those blessings yet come? And it was because even though Israel had endured that 70 years of captivity in Babylon, when they returned to the land, they didn't follow after God. They didn't walk with God as they'd been called to. And so just as we find prophesied in many places, in Ezekiel, Leviticus, elsewhere, God said that if they did not obey him after he brought judgment, God would multiply their punishment seven times. And there's an incredible mathematical prophecy in amongst that. We've looked at it before. I don't intend to go into it again this morning. But you see how God engineered the whole of history around what he was doing with his people, the Jews. And this period of time we're in right now is a period of time where God is not only bringing in the Gentiles, but also bringing Israel to that place that they will eventually call out And they will recognize, as we saw in the previous chapter, in chapter 12, Israel will eventually call out and recognize that Jesus is their Messiah. So God has an incredible plan and through all these things, you know. And sometimes God does allow us to struggle, to suffer, to go through difficult things. Now, there are times we don't get to know why those things happen. And sometimes it's not a result of anything we've done wrong. If you read the account in the book of Job, Job struggles and suffers and experiences all sorts of loss. And his friends, and we have to put that in inverted commas, basically turn up and say, well, Job, it must be your fault. You must have done something wrong. And Job says, no, I've not done anything wrong. And I, like you, used to think that if people were suffering, it was because something was wrong. And But now I realize that God has other things that he's doing, and I don't understand them. And, you know, though I don't understand God, I still trust him. And that's really that great message that comes through the book of Job. It's a wonderful book, great book to study. And here we find this situation that Israel were being disciplined because of disobedience. But amongst it all, it wasn't just about that. It was also so that the Gentiles could be brought in. And you and I should be incredibly grateful that God has opened this door, given us his window of opportunity for the Gentiles to be brought into this spiritual family. 
We saw in chapter 6, the last part, this kind of prophetic uh, vision, in a sense, a real kind of historical event, but Joshua, the high priest, being crowned. It's kind of strange because the priests and the kings were separate. The kings came from the tribe of Judah, the priests from the tribe of Levi, and yet we have this priest whose name is Yehoshua, or Jesus to you and I, in picture here in this time, being crowned. And of course it's a picture of our Messiah, our King, being crowned as the high priest and as the King of Kings, ultimately to sit and rule on the throne of David. Chapter 7 and 8, we have that account where these men are sent down from Jerusalem, down to Bethel, meaning the house of God. And they go and say, you know, we've been celebrating these fasts, these times of mourning that we remembered events that had taken place when Jerusalem was destroyed, when Gedaliah was killed and so on. You know, should we just carry on doing this? Should we just stop it now, now that we're back in the land and the, that time's passed? And really the message comes through, well, why were you doing it in the first place? Is it just, just a, a religious thing you were going through? We need to be very careful in our own lives that we don't just do things out of a sense of religion or a sense of duty. That which we do to the Lord should always be out of a sense of love. And yet, yeah, go to scripture there, you'll find an account with Martha and Mary. You have one that is so into the job, doing things, thinking that that's the right thing to do. That's Martha. And then Mary, just sitting at Jesus' feet, worshipping. We need to be very careful we don't get so caught up in the, the ministry, the things that we think are important, that we lose sight of the worship. And that's really that message that comes through, that God is going to turn these times of mourning, these times of fasting, into times of feasting. God is promising great blessing. And then we see through chapters 9 through 11, these prophecies regarding the Messiah's first coming. I just want to read to you, if I may, um, from this great book uh, by Henrietta C. Mears. Some of you may have uh, be aware of this book, What the Bible's All About. It's really worth getting. It's just a great uh, book to summarize what we have in Scripture. It just gives a good overview. Right, let me just read this to you. So this is just the summary of chapters 9 through 14, and then we'll get into chapter uh, 13 in a second. But it says, These chapters are full of promises of the coming Messiah and a worldwide kingdom. The prophet no longer pictures a city rebuilt on its old foundations but a glorious city whose wall is the Lord. It is not armed for war, but it is a city filled with peace, for the Prince of Peace reigns. He shall come the first time as the lowly one, riding upon a humble beast. That was Zechariah 9.9 we saw. But we'll see this lowly one becoming a mighty sovereign. The Messiah in all his glory and might shall put, on, shall put all the enemies under his feet and he shall establish his kingdom in Jerusalem. And sit upon the throne of David. His dominion shall be from sea even to sea, from the river even to the ends of the earth. That's a quote from chapter 9, verse 10. And it says, if one would follow these chapters more closely, he would discover victory over all the enemies of Israel. Chapter 11 reveals the shepherd who would seek to save Israel, but is rejected, obviously speaking of Jesus. He is sold for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. This is all for all foreshadowed Christ and his betrayal by Judas. Chapter 12 gives us the prophecy of the siege of Jerusalem by the Antichrist and his armies in the last days. Then we see the repentance of the Jews, verse 12 of chapter 12. When they shall see him whom they have pierced. And then what we're going to see in a moment. The fountain shall be open to the house of David for sin and uncleanness. Then the return of the Messiah upon the Mount of Olives, which shall cleave asunder by an earthquake. It's going to split in two. We'll look at that in chapter 14. And reminds us of the day when he left the earth at the same spot with the promise of his return. Finally, he shall be king over the whole earth and all people shall be holy unto him. That's where we're heading. So just to remind you, again, this is just a quick summary from Chuck Misley. He says the scope of this final section is the same as the visions of chapters 1 through 6. So chapters 1 through 6, we have the same kind of thing. That was right at the start of Zechariah's ministry. Now many years later, Zechariah is recording these things, and they seem to be a parallel of chapters 1 through 6, again reiterated with a little bit more clarity and detail in chapters 9 through 14. 
This is from Zechariah's time to the establishment of the kingdom over Israel in blessing, the time the fasts become feasts. I just want to pick up then from chapter 12, uh, where we were last week, just to give us this lead-in, because again, remember in the original, there were no chapter breaks that's been inserted, and it's very helpful, but sometimes it can be a little bit of a hindrance also, because we tend to separate things up into chapters, but this just flows from chapter 12 straight into 13. So I'm going to pick up from verse 10 of Zechariah 12. Uh, and then just got a few additional comments, and then we'll roll through into 13 in a moment. Verse 10 of chapter 12 says, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Incredible statement of this repentance, this turning around for the nation of Israel, accepting Yeshua is their Messiah. Again, it's going to lead to this national restoration. And this is going to occur during the Great Tribulation. I'm going to just come back to this idea of mourning again. We talked about it last week in a moment as we move on. But I just want to hopefully try and give some clarity about this time. We talk about the tribulation and everything we're going to be really focusing on this morning is going to fit into this framework. So it's good to understand where these things are. We have a time yet coming when the church is going to be raptured, taken out of this world. A lot of Christians have never heard of it. A lot of churches, probably the majority, never teach it but it's very clearly in the Bible. We haven't got the time to go and make the case for the rapture this morning, but I would encourage you to go to Calvary Chapel UK website. Uh, It's calvarychapel.uk. And look at the teaching from the recent Teach the Word conference. The sessions there were very much focused upon our blessed hope. And uh, really great, great teaching. Pastor Alwyn from uh, Calvary Chapel, Westminster in London. Uh, really great summary of what the rapture is, that it's biblical and so on. And all the other speakers that day, uh, really kind of just looking at this theme. So if you want more background, um, then that's really a probably good place to go. We've done many studies on it ourselves as well over the years. But that's going to happen. Some point after the rapture of the church, there will be a clock that starts ticking again. In the book of Daniel, in chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, there's an incredible prophecy given to Daniel by the angel Gabriel, which lays out, as we're seeing in a sense here with Zechariah, the future of the nation of Israel. But the incredible thing is we're actually given details and timings. Now, we don't know the dates specifically. In fact, some dates we do know because Daniel prophesies the very, or Gabriel and Daniel records it, prophesies the very day that Jesus would ride into Jerusalem, some five centuries earlier. And it came to pass on the exact day, on Palm Sunday, as Zechariah prophesies as well, that Jesus rode in on the donkey. But there's a seven-year period of that prophecy in Daniel that has yet to be fulfilled. Because the the clock stopped ticking in 32 AD when the Jews rejected Jesus. Luke 19, read the chapter, you'll see that Jesus holds Israel accountable for knowing what that day was. Jesus said, you have missed the time of your visitation. You didn't know what time it was. Jesus specifically says, my hour has come, as he gets to Palm Sunday. All through his ministry, he said, my hour has not yet come, my time has not yet come, until we get to just that one day. And Jesus says, this is it. This is the moment that I'm going to present myself as king to Israel. And that's what he does. Rides in as a king into Jerusalem, but they reject him. A week later, he's crucified. As a result of that, national blindness is pronounced on Israel. And that clock stops ticking from that moment. And it leaves us seven years of that prophecy yet to be fulfilled. That seven years are specific to the Jews, not the church. Which is another reason why the church will be removed before this period of seven years begins. And so we're going to have a seven-year period. Daniel makes it clear, we're given the details. But also in the book of Revelation, we find we have this seven-year period divided into two periods of three and a half years. We're given it in terms of years, we're given it in terms of days and months, so it's very clear, no ambiguity. 
Now, we tend to use Jesus' words from Matthew 24 to speak of that first period of time as the beginning of sorrows. Now, don't make a mistake of thinking that it's... Don't make the mistake of thinking that it's not too bad. It's going to be a horrible time. I mean, a little bit of a weather forecast. It's going to get hotter. I'm not talking about next week or the week that's about to come. If you read in Revelation, it's going to get really hot. People are going to be scorched by the heat of the sun. There's going to be some incredible things going on on earth. It really will give all those people that want to worry about climate change something to worry about. It's going to get really quite nasty on earth as God starts to pour out his wrath and understand that this tribulation that we're speaking of is not a time of difficulty for Christians. Jesus said that we will experience tribulation. We will as Christians. In this world, we're going to experience tribulation. Why? Well, they hated Jesus. Guess what? They're going to hate us as well. That's what Jesus said. This is nothing to do with that kind of tribulation. This is a period of God's wrath being poured out on this world. God will not pour his wrath out on his bride. Okay, so make it very clear. The tribulation that many Christians experience right now is indeed what Jesus said we would know and experience. But this period of time that's coming is a very separate period of time where God will pour his wrath out on this unbelieving world whilst at the same time dealing with Israel. So we have this beginning of sorrows. That will be then followed by the great tribulation. Again, Jesus' words from Matthew 24. There will be great tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world. This period of beginning of sorrows, the first three and a half years, we're going to find these seals. There's a scroll, effectively, that John in the book of Revelation sees in heaven. Just like an ancient document, a a scroll rolled up with seals on it. You know those kind of wax seals they put on a document to stop anybody else opening it? And gradually, as each seal is peeled off, as this document is ready to be opened, certain things take place. Revelation 6, you read a lot about that. And that then leads on to six trumpets that are sounded by angels. And each trumpet brings about something else that happens on the earth. That's followed by seven thunders, which is so scary. John's told, told that he's not even to record them. We wouldn't be able to handle it. We wouldn't know what to do with the information if we had it. So God says to John, don't record that, and it's going to happen. And finally, we have these seven bowls of wrath, or seven vials, poured out upon the earth. That really is the bad bit. That's when nobody is going to be saved at all from that point. We'll see that in just a second. So during this first part, it's bad. The church is gone, but there will be people that will come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. They will not, I believe, be part of the church. The church is a very defined, specific, categorized group in Scripture. And the entrance to the church shuts or stops at the point of the rapture. The people who become believers after this will get caught up to heaven at a later point. We'll see that in a second. And I believe they will be the wedding guests that are spoken of in Revelation that are called out of the Great Tribulation. They're invited to this marriage supper, but they are not the bride. These judgments just kind of roll on one into the next, into the next, as we go through this seven-year period. There will be two witnesses that will witness in Jerusalem for the first three and a half years. I believe they will be literally Moses and Elijah. Many details seem to give us that information. Don't want to be dogmatic about that. If you want to think it's somebody else, that's fine. It doesn't really matter. Whoever it is, the world is going to hear the gospel proclaimed. They're going to see miracles done. Eventually, they'll be put to death. But after three and a half days, they're going to rise to life. And they'll be caught up. They'll be raptured themselves. And they'll go up to heaven. Then, there's going to be 144,000 Jews. Maybe converted as a result of the ministry of the two witnesses. But they will then seemingly witness during this period of time. But they also then will be caught up to heaven and they will stand before the throne in heaven. And then we'll have the tribulation martyrs. These will be people who will come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and as their Savior during this time. They will seemingly all be martyred, put to death. For their faith. They will be in a position that unless they receive this mark, this identification with this world leader that's coming, Antichrist, unless they receive that identification, they won't be able to buy or sell or do anything. And they will end up being put to death. That's the price they'll pay. But they will also then 
all end up in heaven before the throne. Now you notice in the middle we've got the temple in Jerusalem. The temple will be standing from somewhere around the beginning of this seven-year period because this world leader, again, who we, recall, we refer to as Antichrist, in fact, there's 33 titles in the Old Testament and 13 in the New. So we tend to know him as Antichrist, but actually there's a number of other terms that are used for him. The man of sin uh, is a, a phrase from the Old Testament. Uh, the idle shepherd is a phrase that Zechariah uses. The Assyrian is another expression that is used. So lots of different titles, all kind of, if you, if you kind of do a study on this, you kind of get a bit of a picture of who he is. Uh, and by the way, the, the phrase Antichrist, it means in place of Christ. We tend to immediately think of Antichrist as very bad and sinister, and don't get me wrong, he's not going to be a nice guy. But he's going to appear very charismatic, and the Jews will be taken in by him. We saw that in Zechariah last time. They rejected the true shepherd, and they're going to accept this other shepherd. And Antichrist, as we're going to call him, ends up establishing or allowing the Jews to start worshipping again in their temple, which will be rebuilt in Jerusalem. So keep watching what's going on in the news in Israel, in Jerusalem, on the Temple Mount. At some point, we may even get to see that, the temple will be rebuilt. But what's going to be significant is Antichrist, and this is going to be the thing that triggers the beginning of this seven-year period, he will allow the Jews to start offering sacrifices again according to the Torah, the first five books of Moses. He'll allow them to start worshipping again in the temple in Jerusalem. But halfway through, he's going to stop it. And Israel are going to be forced to flee into the wilderness, to this place that we know as Petra, is where we believe this is going to be. It's very difficult to get to, other than on foot or camel or whatever else. It's not an easily accessible place. And God is going to protect and preserve the Jews there for this final three and a half years. But it's going to get to the point that Satan, through Antichrist, is going to bring together the nations of the world in this final attempt to annihilate the Jews, to wipe the Jews out. And that leads us into the things that we're going to be looking at in a bit more detail this morning. Just as an aside, I just think it's fascinating. If you remember when we studied the book of Joel, I said that the book of Joel, I believe, presents a model of what is going to happen based upon the feasts of Israel. Now, there's seven specific feasts of Israel. There's 70 feast days, including the, the, the weekly Sabbaths and so on. Uh, but if you actually look at the seven principal feasts, of course we have Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then we have the Feast of First Fruits. They're all grouped together in one unit at the beginning of their uh, religious calendar year. And for that celebration, those three feasts, all able-bodied Jews had to go up to Jerusalem. And then we have the Feast of Shavuot, or Harvest, Pentecost we know it as, Right, so come in the middle, and then finally the what we call the autumn or the fall feasts, um, to use the American expression, um, which are the feast of trumpets, the feast of atonement, and the feast of tabernacles, and they round out the Jewish feast religious year for them. The feast of trumpets is first, then the feast of atonement, and the feast of tabernacles. Now, prophetically, all those first feasts have been fulfilled. We've seen Passover fulfilled when Jesus was crucified. Jesus was put into the ground, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat dies, it abides alone. And Jesus was put into the ground, just as that grain of wheat. But because he came back to life on the Feast of First Fruits, he brings life to all. He is the first fruits of those risen from the dead. So those feasts have their fulfillment. Of course, Pentecost has had at least a partial fulfillment in the birth of the church. But these final feasts... Trumpets, atonement, and tabernacles, we've not yet seen a prophetic fulfillment to. And I believe the book of Joel gives us the model of what is coming. And they map this whole period of time. The trumpets will relate to this period of time when the trumpets are being sounded and things are going on on earth. The Feast of Atonement will be during this time when Israel's eyes will be opened. Atonement will be made for them. We'll look at this in just a second. And then finally, the Feast of Tabernacles will occur at the time of the second coming, the fulfillment of that feast, as Jesus returns to earth to tabernacle, to dwell among his people. So those are the things that are coming. Hopefully that pictorially makes it a little easier to to kind of put it together. And this is the point where the Jews, somewhere in this region of time, 
Somewhere past the midway point, Israel have fled to the wilderness. The nations of the world are ganging up on them. The final Gentiles have been gathered in. And so because now the fullness of the Gentiles have come in, Israel's eyes will be opened. And that verse we just read a moment ago about their eyes being opened, them looking upon Jesus whom they pierce, they will realize, they'll accept Jesus as their Messiah. And we go on in chapter 12, and it says, In that day there should be a great morning in Jerusalem. And we look to this, uh, it's a morning of Hadrad Rimon in the valley of uh, Megiddon. And again, review last week if you want to get into the detail of these things. But on account of their national mourning, every part of the, the whole country is being given over to this um, just brokenness as they realize that Jesus really was all the time. We talked about getting something horribly wrong last week. You may remember, you may remember the analogy. You know, but that's the way it will be for the Jews. And verse 12 goes on, and it talks about the land shall mourn every family apart. And, and we just said last week, we see the prophet, the priest, and the king all alluded to in this example here. Again, the house of David, that's the king. The house of Nathan, that's the prophet. The house of Levi, the priest. And then all the families. The whole nation is going to be in mourning. And we're told that all Israel are going to be saved. Bob quoted that this morning as he was praying. And this is what scripture clearly says. Paul uses that expression. All Israel. What does that mean? Well, it means that the Jews that believed that became part of the church, the church was Jewish to start with. And then we got brought in as well. So a lot of the church was already Jewish. There's a lot of Jewish believers. But there's a lot, the rest of the nation, their eyes have been blinded. And Paul's references to all Israel means the believing Jews and what is currently the unbelieving Jews will all be brought together and all Israel will be saved. We're going to see their eyes are going to be opened. They're going to acknowledge and accept Yeshua as their Messiah. We just said there'll be this national mourning and repentance. And then chapter 13 continues the same theme. We're going to be introduced to the source of their cleansing. But as a direct result, Satan is going to deceive the world and declare war on God's people, gathering all nations to his cause. But God will allow this to provide an opportunity for divine judgment to fall upon the nations of this world and, of course, upon Antichrist. So now, with that, let's jump straight into chapter 13. And we read, in that day, that phrase that keeps occurring, speaking of the day of the Lord, this seven-year period that we're looking at. In that day, there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David. What fountain are we talking about? Well, it's a fountain that actually started flowing 32 AD at Calvary, the blood of Christ. That's the fountain. Because it says, to the house of David, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and uncleanness. There is only one fountain that deals with sin and uncleanness. This is the problem every other religion has. I remember having many conversations with Muslim colleagues over the years and asking that question, what does your God do with sin? And they could never answer the question. There assumption of salvation is that if I do enough good stuff, then that will be okay. And whichever God they serve will then say, okay, you can come in. That's not how justice works. You, you try doing lots of good stuff and then go out commit a crime, stand before a judge and say, but judge, I've done lots of really good things. Does that mean you can let me off? It doesn't work that way, does it? I have a child who does things... And we highlight that these things are wrong. But they remind me that they've done good stuff too. So it's like, that's okay then, is it? No, it's not okay. That's not how it works. And God is a just God. God can't just ignore sin. It doesn't matter how many good things you think you've done. And by the way, the Bible says that all of our goodness is as filthy rags before God. God's standard of righteousness and justice is so much higher than ours. You know, we think of hatred, murder, you know, kind of thing. Jesus says, even if you have those thoughts in your heart, you're guilty. God's standard of justice is way above ours. Other religions don't have a solution to the sin problem. But here, verse 1, Zechariah, chapter 13, we read that there's a fountain. It's been open to you and I already. This morning we celebrated communion. We ate the bread, we drank the cup in remembrance of the body of Christ, the blood of Christ. That is the fountain. That's our salvation. That's where it comes from. 
and it's going to be opened to the Jews. They will have their eyes open, they will see, and they also will have to put their faith and trust in Yeshua. There is salvation in no other name. The Jews don't get any special dispensation. It's not as if they can get in through the back door because they're of the seed of Abraham. They have to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior. Verse 2 goes on, And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall no more be remembered. And also I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. God speaking now of the idolatry that typically Israel had got mixed up in and caught up in. We tend to think we're above all that now because, you know, we wouldn't be so foolish as to kind of give ourselves over to these kind of idols that were made with man's hands. You know, they worship these things and, you know, plenty of Isaiah and Psalms tell us, you know, that they can't speak, they can't hear, they can't do anything. No, but we've got even more foolish idols. We have idols in our living rooms. We have idols that we listen to on the radio or the TV, whatever. Things that, that draw our hearts away from God, that become a source of worship without us even realizing it's happening. We need to be careful with those things. But God's saying here, particularly for the nation of Israel, that those idols are going to be cut off. They won't go to them, they won't think about them. They're not going to be remembered anymore. It shall come to pass that when any shall yet prophesy then his father and his mother that beget him shall say unto him, Thou shalt not live, for thou speakest lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and his mother that beget him shall thrust him through, and he prophesies. This sounds quite barbaric almost to our thinking. Let's just read on, and then we'll comment. And it shall come to pass in that day that the prophet shall be ashamed, every one of his vision, when he has prophesied, neither shall they wear a rough garment to deceive. I just want to take you briefly to Deuteronomy chapter 13. Turn with me if you will. Deuteronomy chapter 13 just lays this out. You start to get a glimpse of God's heart in regard to these things. Chapter 13 verse 1. If there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and giveth thee a sign or a wonder. Now notice they're doing signs and wonders. Never be impressed by somebody that can do a sign or a wonder. Doesn't mean it's of God. And it says, and the sign of the wonder come to pass. Where have he spoken to thee, saying, let us go after other gods, which thou hast not known, and let us serve them. Then thou shalt not hearken unto the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God proveth you. It's a test to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and cleave unto him. That's a lovely word that we find. We talk about in our marriage uh, services and so on. It comes from the book of Genesis. Adam goes cleaves to his wife. And speaking of us cleaving to God in that kind of relationship. And it says that that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. Do you realize How much God loves you. God doesn't want anything to come between you and him. It's a vile offense to God if anything pulls your heart away from him. Uh, Because he has spoken to you to turn you away from the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of bondage, to thrust thee away out of the way which the Lord thy God commanded thee to walk in. So shalt thou put the evil away from the midst of thee. And look at verse 6. Even, it says, if thy brother, the son of thy mother, or the son of thy daughter, or the wife of thy bosom, or thy friend, which is thine own soul, entice thee secretly, saying, let us go and serve other gods which thou hast not known, Thou not thy fathers, namely the gods of the people which are round about you, nigh unto you, all far off from thee, from one, uh, from uh, the one end of the earth, even unto the other end of the earth. Thou shalt not consent unto him, nor hearken unto him, neither shall I pity him, neither shall thou spare, neither shall thou conceal him, but thou shalt surely kill him, thine hand shall be first upon him. Do you realize how important this is? This is a matter of life and death. That's why this law is there. Because we are speaking not just of now, the 70 years or however we have on this earth. We are speaking of eternity. That's why God puts these rules in place. 
that we would understand just how important the relationship we have with God is. But here we're told in Zechariah that it's going to come to pass that people are going to be ashamed of these things. Anybody that even tries to prophesy a false prophecy, or even if they're doing things that are coming to pass, if it's not of God, the whole thing is going to be put away from them. And notice verse 4 again, it shall come to pass in that day that the prophet shall be ashamed. Even those doing those things, they're going to be humbled as they realize just who God really is. This is not a distant God in heaven that they can't imagine or, or whatever. They go through their days ignorant of it all. This is going to be a God in their midst that Jesus Christ will return to this earth and set up his kingdom. But he shall say, I am no prophet. You know, he's like, no, it wasn't me. <laughs> I, I'm a husbandman. For a man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. They're going to try to completely deny. No, no, I, I, it's not me. I, I, did, I never said anything. People are going to realize the foolishness of following after idols. Verse 6. And one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thy hands? Who is it speaking of? Jesus Christ. The Messiah. The King that's coming. We've had a great song played to us this morning by Casting Crowns. It speaks of those scars. This is not at the time of the cross. This isn't the time of the upper room. We'll talk to that in a second. This is the time of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And at that point, as all these idols are being put away with, one is going to say unto the Messiah, unto Jesus, what are these wounds in thy hands? What do you realize from that is that those wounds are still there. They're still physical. It's been said many times, the only man-made thing in heaven will be scars. And I love the lyrics of that song that Pete played for us. Those scars are not going to be scars that we wear. It won't be because of the trials that we've gone through. The things that scar us now, and they do scar us now, don't they? Some things. They they leave their mark and they, they just don't get shaken. But when we get to heaven, those things will be gone. And the only scars there will be those upon Jesus' hands and his side and his feet. That crown of thorns that was pressed into his head. But the question is asked, what are these wounds in thy hands? Now this is interesting. Then he shall answer, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Some commentators think that this is just speaking of what the Romans did as he's being crucified, as Jesus was being crucified. But I don't really think, if you look at the context of what's said here, that at Calvary, as Jesus is beaten and bruised and having nails put through his hands, I don't think we could really call that the house of his friends, could we? Chuck Misler makes the case, and I think very well, that this is a reference to what took place in the upper room. And if you remember... The night of the resurrection, Jesus appears. But there was one individual who was not there. Interestingly, that night of the resurrection, Jesus breathes upon the disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And they are filled with the Holy Spirit. But one individual was not there, that was Thomas. And Thomas, even though all of his best friends that he's been with the last three and a half years all tell him the same thing. We have seen Jesus. He's alive. Thomas says, I'm not going to believe. It's interesting that without the Holy Spirit, you can't believe. You need God's Holy Spirit to illuminate to you the things of God. And so it's a week later that Thomas is there and Jesus again appears and Thomas has already made this statement, unless I put my hands in the, the, the whole prince in his hands and his side, I won't believe. And Jesus says to Thomas, okay, put your finger in the holes of my hand. Put your finger, in, put your hand in my side and see. And Thomas, just overwhelmed with emotion and regret and grief and remorse, all those things just flooding in, just turns and says, my Lord and my God. But it's interesting that the statement here is, that those are those which he was wounded in the house of his friends. What was the wounding? It wasn't what the Romans did. The wounding was the unbelief. I've heard it said before that unbelief is one of the most painful things to the heart of God. When God has done so much, has given us so much, so much in God's word, 
We don't need more proof. We don't need more evidence. But it's unbelief. And it's unbelief in all sorts of circumstances and situations when we know God. Let me quote again. You're bored of me quoting this quote from Oswald Chambers. But if God is the God you know him to be when you are closest to him, what an impertinence worry is. Think about those moments when you are so close to God. That's the way God is all the time. That maybe it's when we're here worshipping. Maybe you're having a time at home where you're praying or you're reading God's word and you just you have those moments you're overwhelmed by God's goodness and grace and you just, just want to praise him. Maybe in driving in the car, listening to worship music, whatever, and you're just, just overwhelmed with God's goodness. God is like that all the time. The only difference is we move about. But God is the same God. God can be trusted at all times. Uh, That unbelief is something that wounds. Verse 7, Awake, O my sword, against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn my hand upon the little ones. This is quoted by Jesus in Matthew 26, 31 and Mark 14, 27. Of course, when Jesus was struck, as it were, when he was arrested, the disciples did scatter. And that's the context in which Jesus quotes it. Verse 8 goes on, And it shall come to pass, then all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein. And I will bring the third part through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name and I will hear them. I will say, it is my people, and they shall say, the Lord is my God. A couple of things to note, important things here. Firstly, speaking of the future Holocaust, two-thirds of the Jews will be killed in this time that is coming. Jeremiah says this in chapter 30, verse 7, Alas, for that day, this is the time we're talking about, is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble. But notice the hope that's at the end of this sentence, but he shall be saved out of it. This is going to happen to the Jews. Zechariah giving us this dreadful news for the Jews. Two-thirds of them will be cut off, but a third will escape through the fire, refined. It may seem harsh to us, but God is a good God. God is a just God. We will see in the fullness of time and eternity that God gave everyone the opportunity. But nevertheless, two-thirds of the Jews are destroyed by Antichrist and these armies that march against Israel. But notice that last thing. He speaks of this walk with man. You know, that began in the Garden of Eden. God and man walking together in the call of the day. It was continued by Enoch. If you remember, Enoch walked with God, Genesis 5.22. So much so that one day God and Enoch were out walking together and God says to Enoch, well, you're closer to my place now, you might as well come back with me. And Enoch is raptured, he's taken home to be with God in heaven. We see it with Noah. We're told in Genesis 6 verse 9 that Noah walked with God. We see this constantly recurring theme through the Bible. I encourage you, go and get a concordance or computer or whatever and just search for walked and look at all the occasions, these things. You'll find a number of occasions where it speaks of people not walking with God. But look at the occasions of all those that walked with God. Abraham is another one who is said to have walked with God. And David, of course, walks with God. In fact, Solomon himself makes that declaration that his father David had walked with God. Psalm 119, personal favorite of mine, as you know, is a call to walk in the way. It's all about our walk. See, God just wants to have fellowship with us. You know what it's like in a relationship? You want to spend time with the one you love. Just some quality time together. That's what God's wanting. That's what God wanted right from the start. In the New Testament, a number of times, Paul urges us to walk with him. In Galatians, we're told to walk in the Spirit and not gratify or fulfill the desires of the the flesh. During the millennium, Israel are going to walk with him. And that's what we just looked at there in Zechariah. And finally, when we get to the new heavens and new earth, God's walk with man will be resumed. In the new heavens and new earth, God will be our God, we will be his people, and we will walk with him, and it will be for eternity. Not everybody likes going out for a walk, but I think it's something just wonderful, something tranquil, if you get to go out for a nice walk on a lovely day. It's just so peaceful. 
That's the idea. That's the picture. That relationship, that intimacy. Where there's no trouble, there's no concern, there's no care. That's the relationship God wants. In chapter 14, then we just carry on. Behold, the day of the Lord, the same period of time, that seven years we were looking at earlier, cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. Now, we're going to get some detail here. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. This is, we saw this back in uh, the previous chapters. Uh, for I gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the house is rifled, and the women ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity. And the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth. This is the armies of Antichrist coming against Jerusalem, trying to destroy the remnant of the Jews that are there that haven't already fled. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations, even oh sorry, as, as when he fought in the day of battle. So God himself is going to get involved in this battle. When did the Lord fight? Because it says when the Lord fought in the day of battle. When is that? Well, we can cite a number of scriptures. God fought against the Egyptians. If you remember, he put a cloud between the children of Israel and the Egyptians. And then when the Egyptians started pursuing, God decided to just take the wheels off their chariots, which made them much harder to drive. You'd appreciate that. And then drown them in the Red Sea. There's, of course, the Battle of Jericho. One night, seemingly after Joshua goes out and he sees this individual, he says, who are you? Are you for us? And he says, I'm I'm neither for or against. I am the commander of the army of the Lord. It's Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate version or vision of Jesus manifest. The second person of the Trinity there, standing before Joshua, saying that he's the commander of the hosts of the Lord. And it's God, it's Jesus Christ, Yeshua, that fights the battle of Jericho. The Jews just go in and mop up afterwards. We see the same in Joshua chapter 10, verse 12. This battle that occurs in the Valley of Agilon. God again intervening against this Ethiopian army that we read about in 2 Chronicles 14, 12 with King Asa. Cries out to God, God intervenes, God fights for his people. Against the Assyrians, Isaiah 37, 36, and it's mentioned as well in Kings, that this army, this 185,000 man army of the Assyrians are getting ready to march against and destroy Jerusalem. And God says, no, sorry, this is mine. You're not having it. And one night, seemingly again after supper, 185,000 Assyrians are killed by an angel of the Lord. One angel. Then, of course, there's the battle that takes place in the wilderness that Jesus fights on our behalf, and then at Gethsemane, and then, of course, at Calvary, and then here, the battle of Armageddon. Our God is a warrior. Our God is mighty in battle. The crazy thing is that the world are going to be duped by Antichrist, by Satan, into picking up arms and fighting against Jesus Christ. I just, I cannot get my head around that. This is the created fighting with the creator, thinking it's going to achieve something. But nevertheless, it's what's going to happen. And then we're told that his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, the very mount from which Jesus ascended back to heaven. He's going to come back to this mountain, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst. It's going to split apart. By the way, that word cleave, it can mean joining together or breaking. In fact, actually the idea is breaking something apart and then putting it back together stronger than it was. In terms of marriage, it's a great picture. But here it's literally speaking about the mountain splitting apart. They're going to cleave in the midst toward the east and toward the west and there shall be a very great valley and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north and half of it toward the south. This, of course, is the mountain that Jesus rode down into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. If you look at it, you find that there is actually an earthquake fault line running right through this place. It seems to be at this moment that a massive earthquake is going to occur. And it's going to split the mountain. It's going to move one way or another. The remnant that are there are going to flee through the, the crevice that's, that's created as a result. We'll see this in a moment. But it's going to end up with water flowing out of Jerusalem, down towards the Mediterranean Sea, and down towards the Dead Sea from Jerusalem. You get a kind of idea there. And this, this seems to be a model of what's going to take place in the new Jerusalem 
We've already seen and we've looked at scriptures that speak about Jerusalem being elevated, lifted up above the other mountains of the world. And Jerusalem is going to be this incredibly elevated place. In Psalms, I forget which Psalm it is, but beautiful for elevation. It's literally the height, the size of the north, Mount Zion. And see, this water will come flowing from the temple area in Jerusalem and flowing down towards the Dead Sea and down towards the Mediterranean Sea. And you shall flee to, flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azel, and uh, yea, you shall flee like as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and the Lord, my God, shall come, and all the saints with thee. So, and speaking of those that are in Jerusalem at this point, this earthquake's going to occur, they're going to flee out through this way. There's a great link I found, I'm going to put a link on the, uh, the email tonight. If you want to do a little bit more study into all of this detail, uh, it's fascinating, really, really good article I found, so I'm going to put the link uh, there. Too much information to squeeze in right now. But notice this statement. As God comes back, as the Jews are in this predicament, It says, the Lord my God shall come and all the saints with thee. Now, very often, we just naturally assume, we see the word saints, that it must be the church. Actually, more often than not, when we see saints, it means Israel. But on this occasion, because of the context, I think this is Jews and Gentiles that are part of the church. Because Jude, verse 14, tells us that when Jesus comes back, the saints will come with him. In fact, it's a prophecy of Enoch. It's the oldest prophecy in the Bible, uttered by a prophet. That at the time of the second coming, the saints will return with Jesus. And it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark, but it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord. Not day nor night, but it shall come to pass that at evening time it shall be light. Commentators are kind of debated kind of the exact meaning of this, but it's exactly what Jesus said. There's going to be the signs in the heavens with the sun, the stars, the moon. These All these things are are taking place at this time. Verse 8, And it shall be in that day that the living waters shall go out from Jerusalem. This is what we just said. Half of them toward the former sea, and half of them toward the hinder sea. So it's going to flow down toward the dead sea. The dead sea is going to burst into life. You know, it's dead at the moment. Nothing lives in it. Nothing grows in it. But that's going to teem with life. And then the other direction, the river is going to flow out towards the Mediterranean Sea. In summer... And in winter shall it be. Now, this is just an interesting little statement tucked away there. Does it imply a return to an Eden-like paradise? There will still be seasons seemingly during the millennium. But there's an implication here that everything is going to be uniform. We're not going to have the cold and the hard and so on because it's going to be put back to the way it was. For now, everything continues as it was. But Acts 3.21 is another interesting scripture. It speaks about the times of restitution of all things. It's speaking, of course, of when the Messiah comes back. Everything's going to be put back the way it was originally. Some fascinating studies have been done around this, suggesting that we may even end up, as a result of all the cataclysmic events that are going to surround this period of time, that we may end up once again with a kind of a water canopy around the earth. don't know. Maybe. But if we are going to go back to as it was in Eden, and certainly from things we read in Isaiah, where we're going to have animals that normally would eat each other are going to lay down next to each other. And it's going to be an incredibly different world. It's going to be the world that God kind of intended it to be. And we're told, verse 9, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. And you won't have politicians trying to vote him out or trying to usurp his authority. He'll be king over all the earth. And in that day, there shall be one Lord and his name one. Yeshua, Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Verse 10, and the land shall be turned as a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem, and it shall be lifted up. Notice this statement. It's going to be lifted up. Another one of these references, again, Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Again, speak of the mountain of the Lord being lifted up above the nations. There's going to be some incredible geographical changes that take place. Not least because in Revelation we're told that every island is going to flee away. 
Uh, if you just think and, and work on that logically, if there are no more islands, it means we return to one landmass. Now, that may seem difficult, but actually when you look at the world, if you have a globe, you find that most of it's covered in water, there's certainly one side, and it was very easy just to bring everything together. And uh, there's all these ideas of Pangaea and how the continents all split apart. And you know, people say, do you, do you think the continents were once connected? They are connected, even now. The only difference is some bits have sunk down and water's got in there. Both those bits that are sunk down were lifted up, and not by a huge amount, they're still all connected. So it's not at all improbable that we're going to find that the islands will indeed flee away. There will be one landmass, just as it was in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, and Jerusalem will be right at the center. So again, Jerusalem will be lifted up and inhabited in a place from Benjamin's gate unto the place of the first gate, unto the corner, and from the tower of Hananiel unto the king's winepress. And men shall dwell in it, and there shall be no more utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. Or the hope that is in that statement. It may not seem like it right now, but this is what's coming. Verse 12. And this shall be the plague. So it's talking about, oh, so this is all the really good stuff, but just let me give you some of the other side of what's going on, why the Lord is doing all that. This shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. So these armies of Antichrist that have been brought together from all the nations of the earth. This is what's going to happen. I'm sorry that this happens on a Sunday lunchtime as you're thinking probably your tummies are rumbling. Mine's rumbling. Yours is probably rumbling too. And you're thinking about going home and having a nice lunch. But just let me read this. This is what's going to happen. Their flesh shall consume away why they stand on their feet. And their eyes shall consume away in their holes, in their sockets. And their tongue shall consume away in their mouth. This is going to happen before they even hit the ground. It seems to be describing the effects of a neutron bomb. Now, by all accounts, only Israel and Russia, because of the agreements that have been in place around the world that have this capability today. Certainly some analysts have suggested they're the only two nations that have this technology or this capability. We're not talking about nuclear weapons, we're talking specifically neutron bomb. And the effects that they were caused are exactly as described here, five centuries before Jesus came, before we had any kind of understanding of modern weaponry. And this incredible statement that those that march against Jerusalem are going to be consumed. Now, whether it will be uh, this kind of radiation, neutron bombs thing, or whether the Lord is just going to do this in a different way, it's irrelevant. Those that are coming are going to be literally consumed as they stand. Their eyes are all going to shrivel up, their, their flesh is going to shrivel up, and their tongue is going to be consumed away in their mouth. And it shall come to pass in that day that a great tumult from the Lord shall be among them, and they shall lay hold everyone on the hand of his neighbor, and on the hand, and his hand shall rise up against the hand of his neighbor. Now, this isn't the first time, by the way, God has caused Israel's enemies to turn on each other and fight against each other. There's a number of accounts in the Old Testament where God did that. Seemingly, the same thing will happen. And Judah also shall fight again, fight at. Jerusalem and the wealth of all the heathen round about shall be gathered together, gold and silver and apparel in great abundance. You see, as a result of this, Israel is going to reap all of this reward. How it's going to be brought there, what's going to happen, it's kind of irrelevant. God says very clearly here that Jerusalem is going to be made and the Jews hugely wealthy as a result of this ill-fated attack by their enemies. And so shall be the plague of the horse. So this is this isn't just going to happen to Humans, it's going to happen to animals as well. It seems to be something that affects flesh. And so shall be the plague of the horse and the mule, the camel, and of the ass and of the beast, and um, that shall be in these uh, tents at this plague. So as this plague. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. Why the feast of tabernacles? Because as I said earlier, I believe that will be the date of the timing of the second coming, that Jesus will return on the Feast of Tabernacles. It will be the anniversary of when Jesus came and established his kingdom. So it makes sense that every year at this point, people will come up to Jerusalem to commemorate this incredible event as the King of Kings comes and establishes his throne. 
Notice everyone's left of the nations. Now, if you read Matthew 25, you'll find there an incredible statement where Jesus speaks about the nations of this world being judged. They will all be judged depending upon how they have treated Jesus' brethren. Who's that? The Jews. Jesus' brethren, according to the flesh, were the Jews. Jesus was born as a Jew. Jesus' earthly mother was a Jew. Joseph was a Jew. Jesus was brought up in a Jewish family. The world will be judged, the nations will be judged, depending upon how they have treated Israel. And those that survive, there will be some that survive that come out the other side of this. Every year they'll come up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts. Zechariah 8.23 also made reference to this. And people would look to the Jews and hold on to a Jew as they're going up to Jerusalem, saying, take me up to Jerusalem, I can worship. And it shall be that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. So God says, if you don't come, there won't be any rain on your land. That's going to cause all sorts of problems for crops, for growing, for harvest, for food, for water. But then an interesting statement. And if the family of Egypt go not up and come not, they have no rain. There shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Why are Egypt singled out? Well, then maybe not the only nation, but of all nations on the earth, they're one of the few that don't rely on rain because they rely on the water from the Nile. And their fields are all watered by the overflow of the Nile. And so, whereas most nations depend upon rain, Egypt depends upon the Nile. So they're singled out seemingly for that specific reason here. Verse 20 is the last two verses of this incredible book. In that day shall be there, there, there shall be, oh, I missed it up completely, let's try this again. This is the climax. Really getting, right, again, verse 20. In that day, shall there be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto the Lord. And the pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Everything is going to be sanctified, set apart. Even the bells around the the horses' necks, everything is going to be perfect, is going to be pure. God is going to turn this world into something we can't even imagine. We have no concept, really, of what Eden was like. And by the way, this is still this earth. When we get to the new Jerusalem, it's going to be even better. But this is going to be incredible. And the big transformation is not just the climate or the geography of the earth or any of those things. The big difference is that Jesus Christ, God himself, will be ruling on this earth. Anybody will have the opportunity to go to Jerusalem and see Jesus face to face. We will get to listen to Bible studies taught by Jesus as he reveals to us these things in his word that we haven't even begun to imagine. We study through and we pull out bits we can and we enjoy it and we learn and we grow from those things. But the Lord is going to show us things that we haven't even begun to comprehend. Last verse, verse 21. Yea. Every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holiness unto the Lord. It almost seems like a strange expression to be talking about pots. It's, you know, everything, down to the little details, the little vessels that are used, everything is going to be dedicated to the Lord. And they, the sacrifice shall come and take off them and seethe therein. There's going to be sacrifices, by the way, during the millennium. Ezekiel makes reference to that. And some people think, well, why will there be sacrifices? Because surely everything came to an end at the cross. No, because the sacrifices during the millennium will be just as the sacrifices before the cross. In the Old Testament, all the sacrifices that the Jews did were all pointing towards the perfect lamb that would be slain. During the millennium, all the sacrifices will be pointing back to the lamb. And there will need to be that reminder of the horror of shed blood of an innocent giving up its life, to remind those generations, those born during the millennium, of what Jesus Christ accomplished for us. The cost of sin. And the wonderful world that will be created on account of what Jesus has done. And in that day there shall be no more the Canaanites, 
in the house of the Lord of hosts. The Canaanites were those enemies of God. They inhabited the land. They kind of muscled into the land. They got involved in all sorts of horrific, abominable practices. They used to sacrifice their children to their gods and got involved in all sorts of sexual immorality and so on. Some tribes were so debased, they wiped themselves out through disease and so on. And it just speaks of all that is evil, all that is wicked, all that, every deep, dark thought that a man or a woman can have combined in that idea of the Canaanites. All of that would be no more during this period of time. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for this incredible book of prophecy. We thank you for the great words of hope that we see here. We thank you for your faithfulness to your people Israel. And Lord, we recognize your faithfulness to the church in keeping the promises that you have made to us, that you have gone to prepare a place and you will come again and receive us to yourself. Father, as we are rapidly approaching these times, Lord, help us right now to let our lives be cleansed by the working of your Holy Spirit. May our lives right now be holiness unto the Lord. Lord, as we prepare to come and meet with you, as we're caught up into the air, as we come back to that place you've prepared for us. Oh Lord, just purify your church. Get us ready for the rapture. Get us ready for our wedding day. And we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, Lord, in light of all of these things that are coming. But we recognize, Lord, that peace is coming to Jerusalem. There will be a time that will be no more war, that you will be ruling and reigning over the whole earth from Jerusalem. And so we say, come, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.